This morning we will be concluding our study of Thessalonians, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And uh, next, next week you will get the uh, privilege of hearing Johnny preach. It's been a little while since Johnny Peace has preached. And um, Jamie and I will be heading to New Orleans, so if you could be praying for us. Um, Jamie hopes to make a lot of money in the casinos out there, so. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, the, the Southern Baptist Convention is this week, or this coming week, and so we're going to be traveling out there for that. A couple of important votes to be a part of, so please be praying for us as we travel. Um, Paul has been very concerned with making sure that this new body of believers starts out on the right foot. And, and what I mean by that is we've seen time and time again he's laid out the gospel and the, the gospel is what should be centering the lives of this church it should be the, the focus, the traditions that they call back to whenever they have things in question. Um, he's talked about issues of eschatology or end times, trying to fight off this idea that Jesus has already come back, that began to creep into this small body. But today, this is this probably the um, second largest theme here in 2 Thessalonians in this passage that we're going to cover today. And, and this is all about how the church is to look. What, what the church is supposed to look like to the outside world. And, and if you think about it, anytime you start uh, a new group, the only thing that the outside world has to evaluate the new group is the lives of the people in that group, right? They don't know what you believe. They don't know what you're holding to. So they can't, there's nothing they can you know, evaluate there. What they have to look at is your life. And what does your life say about the cause of this new group that you are involved in? And, and Paul knows this, being a church planter, he, he knows what's important is the reputation of this group within this city. So if this group of people are a bunch of rabble-rousers who just want to overthrow the government and say, hey, Jesus is now Lord, guess what's going to happen to this group? Quickly, right? So, so Paul is concerned that the way in which Christians live out their lives is a way that is attractional to the message of the gospel. In other words, their lives become the first step in the process of being able to hear the gospel. And I would argue that that is true of us today. Many people don't hear the gospel because of the way we act. We, we live in a time where it's, it's easy to say and do whatever you want, and we even kind of live in a culture in a country that lifts that up as a value. I'm just speaking my mind. I'm just stating my opinion. 
And then you wonder why you don't ever share the gospel with any of your friends and family because they don't want to talk to you. They've seen the way you live your life. They've seen the way you act around others. They see the way you treat waiters and waitresses. And they think, I don't, I don't know that I can listen to this man talk about loving others. I've seen the way he treats the servers. I've seen the way he treats other people at his job. And so we, we cut the throat of the gospel message with the way we live our lives before we ever get a chance to share it, if we get the chance to share it. And Paul knows this. And so Paul is addressing an issue that was common at this time in, in this culture, and he wants to combat that so that, not, not so that they will be a certain type of person, but so that the gospel message will run unhindered. Remember his prayer at the beginning of this chapter? Pray that the gospel runs unhindered. And so as we look at verses 6 um, through the end here of Second Thessalonians, I want you to, I'm going to kind of outline this in two, but I mean, we could kind of break it up into three because it's been, you know, a couple of weeks since I've had three good points. So I need to get back to being a good preacher. But one is avoid the idol. Avoid the idol. Second is don't be idle. Now, again, that, that could be one point. So I'm just breaking it up into two sub points, but... Avoid the idol and don't be idle. And then finally, don't give up on each other. Don't give up on each other. Let's jump into our text this morning and, and kind of look at what Paul is saying here. And we can read this together, if you don't mind, as a church. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be burdened to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. For you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy." but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times 
in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the vein of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So this is, a, again, kind of the longest section that Paul is addressing uh, this issue of idleness. And he's discussing a, a disorderly way in which some of the idle people in the midst of this church were living. And, and that they needed to heed the call to change. They, they needed to change the way in which they were living their life. And this is an important passage for us as Christians because it deals with the kind of the, the, the latter stage of, of how we are to address one another when we fall into a particular sin and when there is a, a need to call to change. So throughout these two letters, Paul has been giving authoritative instructions and he expected them to obey what he has said, right? This is, Paul is expecting them to, to receive these letters, receive this instruction, and then change, conform, if their life doesn't line up to that. If it does, praise God. But if it doesn't, conform their lives to live in the way that Paul is asking them and charging them to live. And he begins this section with one such instruction, which is with, withdraw from every brother who is living in idleness and not keeping the tradition that he, that, that he has received, right? So the, the word withdraw there is, is a nautical term, and it means to furl the sails. And the idea here is when the sails are folded up and stowed away out of sight, that, that we should take kind of the same action, that, that we should withdraw ourselves from these brothers who are living in idleness. And this withdrawal doesn't mean a total absence from the brother, but it means a withdrawal of the full Christian fellowship that, that, that having the sails on full display would entail. This is what Paul is charging them to do. There's no excuse given for this idleness. Paul says, you know, there's no well, but if they do this, it's okay. He says, no, if, if they are acting in this way, it is your job to pull back your Christian fellowship with them. Now, idleness, is if you have the ESV, is what is rendered, but the NASB renders it as unruly. And I think this is actually a, a, a better picture of what Paul is getting at with this word. And it means not to be submissive to government or control and implies a lack of discipline or an incapacity for discipline and often uh, denotes waywardness or turbulence of behavior. Right? These are people who weren't just sitting there doing nothing. See, idleness kind of has this picture, I think, for most of us is they're just treading water. They're not really doing anything. But Paul is using a word here that also means unruly in the sense of they are not obeying the government. They are not doing the things that they are supposed to be doing. So it's not just being idle in the sense of doing nothing, but it's actually not being disciplined, not listening to authority. 
And idle or unruly, the word here comes from, again, the military realm of speech, and it refers to an insubordinate or disorderly conduct. Paul's probably chosen this word very carefully because there is an ordinary word for idleness that he could have chosen that just means idle, standing still, but that's not the word he chose. Instead, again, they're doing more than being idle. They're, they're out of order. For Paul has given them very specific instructions. You, you might want to say Paul has given them marching orders, right? As, as, again, as a military term of this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is how we are to act within our community. And this is how we are to regard our work. And these people, they're not doing what they ought to be doing. Therefore, the, the translation here, idle, covers really only half of their offense. They're, they're not being good soldiers in Christ by the way they are acting. One theologian adds, in the context of work, this word refers to a failure to fulfill one's duties and work obligations. And they had a perfect example of what fulfilling one's duties and work obligations look like in Paul and his companions. And that's what Paul lays out here. And this was very common for a teacher of this time to use himself as an example to make his point. And this is why it's important that teachers live what they teach. And so that's what Paul is now doing. He's saying, look, I have lived this life in front of you that I am teaching you. I am not asking you to do something that I myself am not willing to do. Paul and his companions had worked rather than remaining idle when they visited with them. And he details this in verse 8. They didn't eat anyone's bread. In other words, they weren't mooching off of anyone. But rather night and day by labor and struggle they worked so that they had would not be a burden to them. Paul could have very easily inserted his right as an apostle to say, hey, we, we're having dinner, I need you to feed us. But instead, him and his crew were involved in tent making, which was an exhausting job that didn't pay a whole lot. Yet Paul's not ashamed of the work that he did. Nor was he too lazy to do that work. He had the right to ask, again, for, for payment as a servant of Christ. But, but every time he waived his God-given right to do so in order to become an example to this church. And perhaps Paul wanted to make sure these disciples didn't fall into the pattern of the philosophers of his time. Right, This is a group of people that would go around and just give speeches, and then ask for money. They didn't really live or do anything other than give speeches. That, they were orators. That's, that's what they went around with their rhetoric, and they just gave that out, and this is my job, they would say. I'm not actually going to do any real work. I, I'm just going to have this job where I walk around and I talk to people, right? I mean, we call them politicians nowadays, but, 
But, that, but that's what the philosophers would do at this time. These were also the, the culture makers, the, the leaders in different kinds of foreign gods that, that, that they would be the advocates for these foreign gods and these foreign ideas. And again, maybe Paul has that in mind here. And he's like, look, we don't want to be like them. We don't want you to think that we're just another bunch of traveling philosophers who don't want to work and just want to talk about this Jesus guy so that you'll feed us, so that you'll house us, so that you'll give us money. We want the world to see that the Christian church is different. It's not the same. And, and to do that, again, even though a pastor, Paul asserts, has the right to be paid for being in the scripture and teaching, I'm not going to take that right in hopes that this group of people in this first generation church will see that we are different from the philosophers. Oftentimes, these philosophers would also live off of their patrons. So it wasn't just that they would take up a pass an offering plate at the end of their speech. They had certain people that wanted those ideas and values pushed, so they would hire these guys, these philosophers and these people who were good with rhetoric, to come and give speeches in hopes of getting the crowd to see the point of the patron. Right? Sometimes this was just supporting the patron so that he was moving up into society. Sometimes this was promoting the ideas of the patron so that, again, when the patron went to speak and they were like, oh, we know, we know what this guy's talking about, right? And so you've got these, these people who are just living off of one or two people as their sole means of income, again, so that they could avoid working. No matter what Paul was thinking, he, he became a model and set a pattern for this early church, that they were to be different. And surely Paul has some idea of a problem. We don't know exactly how Paul got the word of the problem, but, but because he's addressing it here with some authoritative instruction, he, he knows there is at least a small problem developing in this church. And so Paul says, whoever won't work shouldn't eat. And that's surely an applicable instruction for us today in the church as well. In a day of government handouts, people getting lazier than they have ever been, the, the authority behind this instruction is God's authority. And we must never forget to emphasize that. Timothy perhaps maybe reported back to Paul that there's a problem that hasn't been solved yet. And after what Paul wrote and all he said, there were still some who were living in a totally unstructured way, in an unruly way. This is a very important insight for us this morning. Most people who are in trouble because of their own failures, in one way or another, it's because they are living unstructured lives. When you think about some of the problems and issues that you face in your life, it's easy to blame all of these other things, but so often we need to be pointing the finger back at ourselves 
right? The old saying, when you're pointing one finger away, you got four fingers pointing back at you. Like, like we, we live in ways that are unhealthy and unstructured, undisciplined. We, we need structure. We need discipline and regularity. Here, because they didn't work, they roamed about among the rest that were busy, but they were busy at nothing. They were just being busy bodied. So rather than doing the work that God had called them to do, they instead took that time and went and did other things that were harmful. Clearly, if we will not fill our day with those things that God has called us to do, we will fill it with those things that he forbids. If we don't fill our days with the things that God has called us to do, we will fill it instead with things that he forbids. Again, that, this is where that military term unstructured sometimes helps us here. It has the idea of being out of step or not standing by one's post, not doing your job. And that's precisely what happens to us when we don't have any structure in our lives. Let me give you a little practical application for this. And I'm sorry if this offends some of you, but if you are struggling with a porn problem, 99% of the battle is going to bed by 10 o'clock. 99% of your porn problem will be cut out if you will go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. Because the hours from 10 to 1 in the morning are the, the, the time in which porn is viewed the most. The Lord says to rest. And when you choose not to rest, we tend to fill it up with the things that he forbids. You got a friend struggling, just say, hey, go to bed at 10 o'clock. Not a perfect fix, but just adding that structure to your life will fix 99% of the problem. This is what Paul is getting at here. When, when we don't live our lives the way God has called us to live our lives, we will fill them with all of the things that he forbids. Our task as a church is to help each other develop these disciplines, to develop by, by, the, by the structure of the instruction of the word of God, again, this is not us making up rules, right? We're, we're just following the word of God and laying out a biblical course for their lives that they should take. And this is, this is where your small group can be so helpful to, again, maybe pull one guy or one woman aside and say, hey, I'm struggling in this area. Would you help me to stay accountable to have structure in my life so that I avoid X sin, whatever it is. I didn't look this up, but I have a hunch that compulsive shopping is probably that same time frame. Buying things you don't need. Right? So, so maybe, maybe the answer to help you with your compulsive shopping is just go to bed. <laughs> Live in a structured way. 
And then, as believers, we are to encourage them until they have developed the structure that's necessary to live a godly life. In verse 12, speaking now of those who are disobeying, he commands and he urges in the Lord Jesus, that is, by his authority, this isn't Paul's authority, but Jesus' authority, to work with quietness that they may eat their own bread. Again, do you see how that picture of unruliness starts to come back in here? Paul is saying these people are out and they're loudly speaking and spewing all kinds of things that are not helpful to the gospel message. Right? They're just putting their opinions out for everybody because, hey, it's my opinion. Instead, Paul's saying, hey, live quietly so that you can eat the bread from the work that you do to the glory of God. Evidently, their idle gossip was stirring up trouble. Instead, they should live a quiet life. This is... Again, something we see so many times within the church, but really any, any group of human beings, right? That, that you have people who have all this time on their hands. And so because they have so much time on their hands that they are not living in a structured, disciplined way that glorifies God, they begin meddling in everybody else's lives. They, they begin to try to get involved here and insert themselves here. And well, maybe I should do this and maybe I should do that. Nobody's asking them to, but that's, they have nothing else to do. And so you, you have these busybodies that are just stirring up dissension within the body. And again, I don't, I don't think this is a uniquely church problem. I, I see it in all kinds of groups, but but when it comes to the church, those busybodies, those people who are trying to insert themselves in all these people's lives and, and trying to take control and trying to do all of these things, they're hindering the gospel in that group, in, the, in that body of believers. Because they're not honoring the structure that God has placed over them. Instead, they think, I need to be unruly. I need to assert myself and I need to become the leader. I need to take charge of this event because it's not getting done the way I think it should be done. Well, all that, all that does is sow division and creates problems. Instead, we ought to be brought to a place of rest and peace for those who live in community with them by living ruly, structured, disciplined lives and of one who works hard. And, and they're not to do this, Paul says, for a brief period of time, but to continue not becoming weary in well-doing. And this is, this is the problem I see is so many Christians, they start out well. But, but in a short time, they find that the work is hard. And they want to quit because they, they, they get tired of their labor. They, they get bored in the routine. It's like, was this, is this all it is? I got to do this every day, you know? It's like I feel like I'm on a hamster wheel. I just want to jump off. And then their life jumps off. 
And then they're back wondering, what happened? Why does God not love me? Well, you jumped off the wheel. <laughs> yeah. You got away from what God was calling you to do. And that's not the way a Christian should operate. When, when we work for Christ, no matter how laborious or tedious the job is, no matter how boring the job is, it can become a pleasant challenge when we do it unto the Lord. Your, your job, guys, is not ultimately about the company that you work for. It's not ultimately about the boss who hired you or owner. Preeminently, it's about what you make of it to the glory of your Heavenly Father. You can find ways to challenge yourself, to push yourself, not because the company wants you to, not because your boss wants you to, but because you want to be the best example of being a believer in your particular position. That they look at you and go, you know what, that guy works hard, and I don't, I don't know why he works hard. And then they start, at, why do you work so hard? Well, because I do my job to God's glory, not for company profits. And I believe if I do my job to God's glory, company profits will come, but, but my, my motivation, my position is to God's glory. And I want to be faithful to him, right? It opens up the, the, the opportunity to share the gospel to your coworkers and to your friends because of the way in which you work your job. We're to avoid being idle, but we're also to avoid the idol. And I skipped over this because he kind of starts in verse 6, but then he comes back to it in verses 4 through 15 or 14 through 15. And we have to ask ourselves what does this withdrawal or um kind of kind of stop mixing with this prayer like what what does withdrawal of fellowship look like? And it was interesting reading about this because there's there's a wide wide interpretation of what uh people think that these verses mean some something this is all the way over into church discipline um others don't see that and and see something different um i, I want to kind of you know take the more middle moderate road i guess you would say of those two extremes and, and kind of give you an example of what paul is talking about in these passages in these verses so what does a withdrawal of fellowship look like well do you see how he urges us to hate the deed but love the person because it, it's 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 a work of the devil to tear us apart god, god calls us to unity the devil wants disunity and, he, and he's he's always taken great care to destroy love especially that's the one thing the devil just cannot stand is when people love one another. And so that means the means of correction will be gone if, if we destroy that love that we have for one another. 
And, and people just continue in error, even, even to the point sometimes in which salvation is blocked. Let me give you an example of what I think Paul is getting at in this passage. So just, and these are hypotheticals, so if you're here and your name is Robert or John, I apologize. But, but Robert calls up John one day and says, hey, John, um, you know, let, let's go fishing. And this is something both guys really enjoy doing. They've done it in the past. And John says, sure, I, you know, I'd love to go fishing with you, but, but things aren't right. Like there, there's a problem in your life. And you're living in an unruly way. And because of that, I can't fellowship with you and go fishing with you as if nothing is wrong. That, that wouldn't be right. But is that the end? No, in verse, 12, in verse 15, Paul continues, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but rather treat him as a brother, right? So even these unruly people are called brother from the beginning to the end of this passage. Okay? That's important. Now, they're not acting the way Christians should act, but Paul still considers them brothers. And so we're not to totally shun them, totally not spend any time with them, totally turn our back to them, because they are still our brothers. And how will we be known if we're followers of Jesus? The love we have for one another, right? And so instead, John now is given an opportunity here. Whenever Robert calls him and says, hey, let's go fishing, this, John looks at this and says, this is, or John should look at this and say, this is an opportunity for me. And I, and I have an obligation. I want you to notice, leaders aren't mentioned in this passage. This is... I, I don't see the extreme church discipline here because the leaders are never involved. This is something that the church does. This is, this is part of the one-on-one -on -one ministry of the church. John says, you know, we can't ignore this problem in your life. Right? Maybe, maybe I don't know. Um... Robert's cheating on his wife. I, 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 don't know what the, well, I don't know what the issue is, right? But, but there's some issue that, that John's aware of. And we can't simply ignore this problem. I'll tell you what. Instead of fishing, why don't we get together? And let's take that same time that we were going to spend on the boat instead together talking about what's going on in your life and seeing how we can move toward reconciliation and restoration. That, that is the picture that Paul is painting here. Right? The, the sails are furred. We're not going fishing. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to spend time with you. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to encourage you to make things right. And, and all the time, countless times in our small groups, guys, we, we have the opportunity to do this. If, and this is my third point, 
we don't give up on each other. So many times I just see it's easier for people to just wash their hands and say, you know what? I don't have to deal with this anymore. It's not my problem anymore. They're not here anymore. Right? They don't fellowship with us anymore. I don't have to deal with it. And I think that that is so short-sighted and it forgets that we are not just members of a local body, but a larger body. And so for me as a pastor, what that has looked like is maintaining with relationships with people who have long since left. Now, we can't have full Christian fellowship, but I can still reach out to them and encourage them and try to bring about reconciliation. Sometimes it works. I'll, I'll, be, listen, I'll be honest with you, and I know why Paul put, put this verse in here about do not grow weary in doing good, right? It often doesn't work. And it's easy to get discouraged and go, you know what? Why am I even trying? Why am I even doing this? Why am I putting myself through this time after time after time after time? Because Paul tells us to. Jesus never gives up on us. You think about how many times since you became a believer that you have failed him. And yet, he never gives up on you. That's one of the things that, that encourages me about confession and repentance is because that's an opportunity for you to say, this is why I need Jesus. This is why I need a Savior because I am imperfect. I am sinful. I am stupid. I am what, fill in the blank, whatever. And I need a Savior. That's really what you're saying when you confess and repent. That's why confession and repentance that leads to depression, you're doing it wrong. It should always lead you to joy. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to do, but I'm saying the end result of it should be a weight is lifted off of you and you're reminded, oh yeah, I don't have to save myself. Jesus did that for me. And if we don't give up on one another... We are living out what Jesus does for us every single day. Don't give up on each other. Your friends, your family, they may not always go to church in the same building that you go to. That doesn't mean they're not a part of the church. To use Paul's language here, that doesn't mean that they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, we should never ever give up on them will it be different yes the sales are heard it, it, it's gonna look different don't feel guilty about that i mean part part of the way you know when we when we are together that typically creates more together time and when we are apart it it becomes difficult and you have to put it on the calendar you have to schedule it to make together time. Does that make sense? Like if you're in small group and you're going to small group regularly and small group says, hey, let's get together Friday and go eat. 
Or let's go to Vicky's pool and go swimming. Or let's go up to Burton Brooks and pick some peaches and eat some delicious ice cream. Right? That happens spontaneously out of the time that you're spending together. And what I hear so many times is people who don't spend time together regularly, they get mad and say, why doesn't anybody invite me? As if it's a personal offense, but it's not. It's just a result of spending time together. And so if and when someone chooses to be in a different place, don't don't feel guilty because all of a sudden you don't spend as much time together. That's just the nature of relationships. But it doesn't mean they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean we don't take their phone calls. It doesn't mean we don't seek restoration if it's needed. Sometimes people just move because their jobs move. I'm ex- One of the things that excites me, I'll be honest with you guys, most of the time I could care less about conventions that I go to with the church, the convention part. What I'm excited about is my friend Bo Beavers, who used to pastor a church in Providence, I just saw he's going to be there. And we're going to get together and we're going to have a meal. Because he's been in College Station ministering and pastoring over there for the last 10 years. And every once in a while, we, our paths cross and I get to see him and I get to hear what God's doing in his life and I get to share what God's doing in my life. And that excites me. Again, sometimes people are called to different places for different reasons. But that doesn't mean that we don't look for the opportunity of, hey, we're driving through this town. Let me give them a call. Let me see what they're doing. Maybe we can meet up and have a drink, have dinner. Right? We don't give up on each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for never giving up on us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to avoid being busybodies and living in ways that lead to destruction and ruin because we are doing and filling our time with things that you hate. And Lord, there, there are, I know in this room there, there are simple decisions about the way we spend our time this morning that would lead to far less sin in our life if we would just commit to living in that structured way day in and day out, even when it gets hard, even when it gets boring. And we would do it for you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to never give up on each other. To live and model what you have modeled for us. That even while we were enemies, you came and died for us. And if you would do that for an enemy, how much more should we do that for a brother or sister in Christ? And Lord, maybe we need to go and confess and repent and and be reconciled with our brothers and sisters because we have given up on them. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the church that that Paul is, is calling us to be in these letters, Lord. And that we would have the opportunity 
to share the gospel because we are living in a way that honors the gospel and represents you well. And Lord, that, that, that we wouldn't have to look for opportunities to share because we would be constantly being asked to give a testimony of why we live the way we live. Why we love the way we love. But Father, we can only do that in and through the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you would bless us with the fruits of the Spirit to be able to love, to be able to be patient, to be able to be kind. We beg you for that. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.